Good morning, everyone. You know, it's funny, I always hate to like interrupt the good vibes when everyone's saying hi to each other. Everyone's just excited because I've heard there's a very good episode of football on today. Um, <laughs> but thank you guys for being here. Hey, we're in the final week of our series, Marriage, Sex, Gospel. And it's funny, when we actually posted uh, originally kind of the promo of this banner up on our Facebook page, somebody from our Hollister campus said, you know, one of those things really shouldn't be talked about in church, dot, 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 marriage, <laughs> which, I, which I, thought was, I thought was pretty clever. It's like, not bad. Not a bad joke. It's worth me repeating it on stage. Um, we're going to get into our final week of this series, but before we do that, I just wanted to be selfish and uh, take a second to introduce you guys to somebody. This is my daughter. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's our little girl. She's two weeks old today. Um, we had her at home two weeks ago on Sanctity of Life Sunday, which was absolutely amazing. My wife did an incredible, incredible job. It was truly the most amazing experience I've ever had. And um, her name is Jubilee, Jubilee Joy Whitaker. And many of you probably already know what that means, but if you don't, I'm not going to tell you because I'm a pastor and I want you guys to read your Bible. So <laughs> if you want to know what her name means, you got to go to Leviticus 25 today. And, uh, and read Leviticus chapter 25 and think about what does this festival have to do with the rest of the Bible, and particularly with Jesus and what he's going to come and do. And so that's my, uh, that's my teaser. If anybody cares enough, maybe you'll read a chapter of Leviticus today because I told you to, which would be a, a huge victory for me. And because this two-week-old baby has been uh, living in my house for the last two weeks, you just got to understand that the, the ever-present possibility of me accidentally teaching heresy is at an all-time high today, <laughs> as, as is the possibility of me accidentally falling off the stage or something even more embarrassing like that. But yeah, thank you guys. I, we're, we're so blessed and so excited. So we are, yeah, another little smattering. Wow. All she has to do is exist to get applause. It's going to get harder from here. It's going to get harder from here for sure. So we have been in this series that's, that's largely about marriage, relationships, sex, human interaction, and um, it's been a really awesome series. I think, I hope many of you have been encouraged and, and hopefully learned some, some ideas about parenting and marriage and things like that, and even more so about what the kind of biblical vision for those things is. Um, but today, we're going to close the series by talking to and about a group that, that often is kind of underserved in the church. And especially in a series like this, it's, it's a group of people who can feel, um, can, can have a hard time with series like this. We're going to talk about singleness. And singleness is a, uh, it's a state of being that encompasses a huge variety of people who are in different situations. You can be single just because you're young and your singleness is temporary and you're, you're going to get married eventually. Or you can be single and, and you've been single for a long time and you're not okay with it and it's getting hard. Or you can be someone who has been married and either because of the loss of a spouse or because of divorce, you're single again and trying to figure out, you know, what do I do with that? And then there's also a group of people who by calling or by conviction are single on purpose because maybe that's the only way for them to live according to the way God wants them to or maybe they just feel like God has called them to be single so that they can devote themselves completely to the gospel. It's a huge group of people with a really diverse set of issues and, and a diverse set of strengths and of weaknesses and challenges. And so we want to talk about singleness today, but understand that 
This message, you know, hopefully it's for singles and encouraging to them, but it is just as much, if not more, for those of us who are married, who need to, to kind of get a wake-up call about the single people around us and whether or not we're treating them the way that Jesus would have us treat them. When you're single, verses like this one that we've looked at over and over in this series can be really, really hard to hear. This is from Genesis 2. This is after the creation of Adam and before the creation of Eve. And God, before the fall, looks at Adam by himself and says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, you might hear that and think, man, I, uh, I disagree. I'm alone and it's fine. And, and so it kind of rubs you the wrong way. Or you might hear that and it's painful because you know that for you it's, it's true that you feel alone and you don't want to be alone. Whatever your reaction to it is, it's in the Bible and we've got to deal with it. So we're going to kind of unpack a little bit of what this means today. Before we do that, though, um, Kevin is, is teaching the same subject in Hollister today. And when we kind of started talking about teaching this week, um, we realized, man, uh, we don't necessarily know what being single is like in 2018. Um, it, it's been seven years since I was single. It's been uh, 20 years since Kevin was single. And we... <laughs> we realize, you know, there are some kind of universal challenges and universal experiences to singleness, but it also changes. And, and would you guys agree with me that our society is changing at a rate that is like beyond anything we've ever seen before? Being single in 2018 is different than being single in 2010. So we decided to start by asking some single people what their experience of singleness is like. We actually, um, I talked to several individuals, but we also went to our branch young adults ministry and did kind of a reverse Q&A where me and Kevin asked, a bunch of questions about, hey, what, what is it like for you being single? And we found some really, really interesting things. The most amazing part, actually, was at the very beginning, the first question we asked the group was, what are some of the messages that society is sending to you about your singleness? And at the exact same time, I'm not exaggerating, the exact same time, a young man said the word freedom and a young woman said the word failure. At the exact same time. And I, I'm not trying to, like, lean too hard into those gender differences necessarily, but it was amazing to see this, this huge dichotomy and polarization that at the same time, a single person can feel like empowered and free and that society wants them to stay single forever. And then as you get older, maybe, as your peer group changes, all of a sudden you feel shame. You feel like the reason you're single is because there's something wrong with you. People will say things to you like, wow, you're so awesome. Why don't you have a boyfriend? Why don't you have a girlfriend? As if to imply that, man, if you don't, it's because there's something wrong with you. I actually could relate to this one. I, I remember I used to work for a guitar company and we'd spend some time in Nashville every year. And I was talking to a country artist. It was a month before I got married. And I told him, uh, yeah, next month I'm getting married. And I was all excited. And his answer, the only reason I told you he's a country star is because his accent makes the story funnier. But he said, he goes, get married? Why would you do that? That's like checking yourself into prison. And I was like, oh man, that's, a, that's brutal. But in, in our kind of unpacking of this with the group and with other people I've talked to, it seems pretty clear that the younger you are, the more you're being told that your singleness is a, a badge of freedom and that the older you get, and this seems to be especially true for young women, the older you get, the more your singleness is a, something to be ashamed of. And it was interesting because they said that the shame they feel has less to do with like the status of being in a relationship. It's not necessarily about the commitment or like that you have that, that kind of relationship status of married, whatever. It's, it's more about the assumed experience that you would have 
as a single person as opposed to somebody who's in a relationship. So a lot of the single people at Branch talked about how they feel like everyone just assumes they're naive or that they're super young, and, it's, and it can be embarrassing. And then finally, and th- this is the one that I think, you know, put a pin in this a little bit because we're going to talk more about it later, but the isolation that single people can start to feel, especially, again, as they get older, as their friends get married and stop inviting them to hang out with the married couples, it can be really painful. And so some of our, some of our young adults who are on the kind of the older side of that group talked about that. And I know that for those of you who were married and now aren't married, again, for, for whichever reason, um, this can be incredibly difficult. And married people, just as, as kind of a quick little tip, we sometimes feel like, oh, I don't want to invite them because he's going to be like, he's going to feel awkward. He's not going to want to come. Universally, all the single people I talked to said, just ask because they can say no if they don't want to come. But when they don't get invited, the isolation starts to grow. And the more of your friends get, that get married, the more you start to feel that way. Another issue, and this is, this is a huge one that we kind of have to park on for a minute because I think it's, it's of utmost importance to the New Testament, is the issue of, of sexual temptation for single people. I don't really feel like I need to like go crazy verse after verse after verse showing you guys how important sexual purity and, and sexual morality are to the New Testament. I mean, Paul and Jesus talk about this constantly. So I'm just going to show you one verse, and I like this verse because it doesn't just say that this is important. It says why this is important. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So follow Paul's logic. Why is sexual morality a big deal? Because when you sin sexually, it's not just a sin that takes place outside of you. It's a sin that actually affects your body. Why does that matter more for the Christian? Because your body is not your body anymore when you're a Christian. You've been bought at an incredibly expensive price. That's what he says at the end. And now your body is what? A temple of God. For modern people, this is a hard image to connect with, like the seriousness, the power of what Paul's saying. But try to put yourself in the mind of a first century Jewish person like Paul and a good percentage of his audience. The temple for you is this thing in the history of your people that is of of central importance, this massive, beautiful building that has stood for a long time where even though you believe that God is, is omnipresent and he's all over the world, his presence resides in this temple in a special and unique way. If you want to connect with God, if you want to have your sins atoned for, you go to the temple. What Paul is saying is when you are a Christian, your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself resides in you. So when people say, like, your body is a temple as an argument for why you should, like, exercise or not get tattoos or or all of these different things, understand the primary meaning that Paul has here is your body is the place now where heaven and earth meet in a unique way, where God resides in a special, immediate way. And so Paul says, because of that, sexual immorality is on a whole different level. And it's a huge challenge in the modern world, especially for single people. I mean, there's a sense in which there's nothing new under the sun, as the Bible would say, and that people have been struggling with lust and, and temptation to sexual immorality forever. But would you agree that there are maybe some unique challenges 
in the modern world in this area, right? The first one I put up, um, you know, I have to, have to stop myself from getting sidetracked because I could talk about this for like 15 minutes really easily. Um, but the, the ubiquity, availability, and acceptance of pornography in our modern culture is something that I think we have yet to see the true full effects of. I think those effects are coming. And we're starting to see them. But man, it, it's absolutely huge. Do you guys know that 30% of all data transferred on the internet is pornographic? Did you know that? 30%. Do you know how much data that is? 30%. How about the fact that 64% of young people, that's 13 to 24, 64% are accessing pornography intentionally at least once a week. Now, that's the official stat. I would bet, just based on the work I've done with young people and just people in the church in general, I would bet that the number is actually significantly higher than that. And I think with each new generation of young people, the number is continuing to climb. And the reason why, at least part of the reason why, is another terrifying stat, especially if you're a parent of a young person, 34% of internet users report unwanted pornography. So you don't even have to go looking for it. I mean, it was not that long ago that if you wanted to see pornography, you had to know somebody who like knew where their uncle's stash of magazines was. And then what was available was, was incredibly tame compared to what will come and seek you out on the internet when you're not even looking for it. You don't even know what it is. I talked to a Christian man yesterday who just happened to be telling me that he was searching for something completely innocuous on Google and something about the combination of words he put in, boom, just hardcore pornography. Here's the most depressing one. Anybody have a guess about what the average age of first exposure is? 17, 16, 11, 11 years old. Again, that's average. And that number is going to, I promise you, get younger and younger and younger. And some of it, that, that's why I say the ubiquity and availability of it. Because, guys, we're all walking around with supercomputers in our pocket that have access to everything. 30% of what's on the internet that you get from this is pornography. And you don't have to look for it for it to come and get you. And then the last word, the acceptance, is, is also just hugely troubling. This was already true when I was in high school, but it's worse now. I had friends whose parents were encouraging them to look at pornography so that they could learn about sex because they didn't want to talk to them about it. And among younger people, man, it's just it's becoming more and more normal. And so here's the thing, you guys. <laughs> the minute I started talking about this, I can feel the kind of like withdrawal happening in the room. And a huge part of why that is, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but a huge part of why that is, is because probably 50 to 64% of you are wrestling with this. And we're not going to pretend like that's not the case. By the way, we have this idea in our head that this is like a male issue. 30% women, one in three people who, who use pornography on the internet are women. It's not a men's issue at all. And so... Again, we'll talk about this in a minute, but, but this is not something that we can ignore or pretend doesn't exist. So I apologize for how uncomfortable <laughs> I've made you guys, but man, we, we have got to talk about this because like I said, I think that for young people, for single people, this is going to, to have effects on our society that we still have yet to see. 
The second one is this issue of late singleness. People are, are waiting longer and longer and longer to get married. And that's like, I mean, if you look at America over the last 30, 40, 50 years, that's already true. Like most people tended to get married late, like 19, 20, 21, 22, something like that. Um, and that's getting later and later, right? But if you look at kind of the whole of human history, even 19, 20, 21 is late to get married. Most of humanity, for, for most of human history, was getting married in their teen years, and the whole, I mean, everything worked differently, there were arranged marriages and stuff, but the bottom line is people didn't have to contend with this kind of level of temptation for as long or for as old, and so there's nothing inherently sinful about waiting a long time to get married at all, and again, many of you who are single want to remain single because it's a calling from God, so I'm not saying you have to go get married to solve this problem, but recognize it absolutely influences kind of the length of time and availability of temptation in your life. And then the last one, and I think this is absolutely massive, and we don't really think about how this relates to, to sexuality, but the, the rampant individualism of the culture we live in changes the way we pursue sexuality completely. I mean, you guys know from the minute you're born in this part of the world, you are told to do what's best for you, to kind of advance yourself. If you think about how that affects the way you pursue human relationships, not just sexually, in fact, usually it's sneaky because it starts with kind of emotional or relational fulfillment, that you're trying to meet your needs, to find someone who's right for me. And there's a sense in which that can be fine, but if everything you do relationally is driven by how do I satisfy my needs, how do I meet my needs, how do you think that affects the way you approach sexuality? And all of these things come together to create an environment where, man, sexual purity is incredibly difficult. And here's the dirty little secret. This is the twist, right? All of this affects you just as much when you're married. So if you're a married person and you're thinking, yeah, that does sound hard for single people, be honest with yourself. The minute you got married, did any of you suddenly stop having any kind of temptation to sexual immorality? Raise your hand if the second you got married, you never had another temptation for the rest of your life. Nobody? I was hoping one person would be like, right here, <laughs> not a single one. If you, and this is, this is statistically true, I'm not just saying this, if you struggle with pornography as a single person, that addiction, that struggle will follow you into your marriage. And there are tons of you in the room right now who know that I'm right. And the, more you, the longer you're married and the longer you go without being open about this stuff, the harder it gets to deal with it. The harder it is to be open about it. The shame builds and you end up stuck. And you guys, this stuff destroys human relationships. It does. After first service, I was talking to a psychologist in our congregation who was telling me that they did a test. I'm probably going to explain this wrong, but he told me they did a test where they had two groups of people. One of them did cocaine, the other one, the other group of men looked at hardcore pornography and they measured their kind of brain activity and it was identical. Neurologists couldn't tell the difference between the two groups. And these neural pathways that get formed in your brain are incredibly difficult to break. So there, there's two messages here. Single people, deal with this now. Don't think that you just have to kind of struggle along until you get married and then because you have like this righteous opportunity for sexual fulfillment that that's going to take away all of your temptation and erase all of your addictions and bad habits. It won't. The time to deal with it is right now. And in the same way, married people, if you have this buried in your life, 
And again, you guys, the statistics don't lie. If you have this buried in your life, do not put this on the back burner. The time to deal with it is right now. And the last thing I, I want to advocate to you guys is to, to try to do this stuff alone. If you want to break these patterns of sexual temptation and sexual addiction, you need, you need to seek help in your community, whether it's within your small group, pastors here at the church, or counselors who specialize in this type of stuff. You need to seek help. If you can talk to your spouse about it, if you have those levels of communication, do that. If you'd rather do that with some kind of a, a mediator there with you, whether it's a counselor or a pastor, do that. But do not wait. It's not going to go away on its own. It's going to get worse and have a worse and worse effect on your life. And we're going to we're actually working right now, several people in, in church leadership are working on a program specifically addressing this issue. So be, kind of be on the lookout for that. And then also, you guys, if, if you're ready to take a first step, every Monday night we have a group here at the church called Celebrate Recovery that is all about dealing with life's habits, life's hang-ups, the difficulties that we face. And I just want to encourage you, come to that group. There are people there who understand what you're going through, who have been through it, and have come out on the other side. But don't try to do this alone and don't tell yourself, man, it's all just gonna go away on its own if I, if I leave it alone. Jesus talks about how it's better to gouge your eyes out and go to heaven with no eyes than to be thrown into hell with both your eyes intact. I don't know necessarily how literal we're supposed to take that, but I think he at least means that if you can cut a couple things out of your life to protect yourself, you should. So single people, whether that's, man, how do I date how much alone time? What kind of environments am I alone in? Or whether it's married people, do I really need to have this phone? Do I really need to have these apps? Take this stuff seriously. And that's enough because that's not really what the sermon's even about. <laughs> but uh, I, hope you guys, I hope you guys understand the danger of this stuff. Now, we talked about how you kind of need that community in order to, to fight that temptation. And a huge part of the problem, a huge part of the difficulty for single people is that a lot of the time they don't necessarily feel like they have that access to community within the church. Another entire set of questions that we asked the single people that we talked to was about what their experience of being single in the church is like. And there were some positive things. They talked about how it's great to, to have opportunities to see healthy marriages in the church and how it's great to have more time to devote to ministry. But they also talked about how, um, you know, if you kind of summarize a lot of their thoughts together, they talked about the fact that as a single person, you can sometimes feel like you're not a fully-fledged human being yet in the church. And, they, and we're not just talking about South Valley, please, Lord. We're talking about the church in general. And a lot of single people feel like, no, you're, you're kind of at the kids' table until you get married. And if you're not married, the only thing married people want to talk to you about is when you're getting married and if you're dating and kind of, they, they just continually draw attention to those parts of your life. Now, it could be worse. Uh, uh, we have friends, you know, in the African church that we support and in, in Tanzania in particular, they literally, you're literally in youth group until you're married. So there's like 35-year-olds who go to youth group, not regular church. So just know, we have some blind spots, they have some blind spots, but at least we don't make you guys go to youth group, right? Um, <laughs> But for them to feel like they're not at the adult's table until they're married is, is tragic. Because like we talked about at the beginning, there's a lot of reasons to be single. Some people don't even want to stop being single. For some people, it's a calling from God on their lives. And so when you get, and this is what a lot of people shared with me, if you get advice constantly 
that's not asked for, that assumes that you want to be in a relationship, it can be really frustrating and really alienating. So say somebody who, who isn't even looking to be in a relationship gets told, hey, you know what? This is, this is everyone's favorite piece of advice from Branch. The minute you stop looking, that's when you'll find someone. First of all, what on earth does that mean? Like, I literally don't know what that means. Um, and again, give yourself a break if you've said that to somebody. Um, but, the, but the problem is you, you're assuming when you say that that this is a big broken part of someone's life and that might not be the case. And here's my suggestion to you. If you don't know someone well enough to know if they need that type of advice, you probably don't know them well enough to give them any advice at all. So the solution is not to not give advice. The solution is to get to know the single people in your community better. Get to know them as a whole person. Figure out, do they want to be in a relationship or do they want to be single? What's their past like? And then maybe you can earn the right and, to, and get to know their situation enough to, to offer that kind of advice. But it's incredibly difficult to hear that, you know, so many people in the church feel like if they're single, the only identifying thing about them is something that they don't have in their life. As if the church didn't need our single people just as much as we need our married people. This is something that was said to me in an email a couple weeks ago from a guy who, who doesn't live in this city anymore, and it's, it's a person who struggles hugely with a ton of different issues in his life, and um, he has tried, honestly, I know him really well, he has tried repeatedly to connect with church and um, struggled. And his life is, is miserable and he doesn't have a family. And he told me this, this was the whole email he sent me. I wasn't even asking him about this sermon. He said, for some people, the promise of the church as a family is a dangling carrot. You guys get the metaphor? Like a horse where you, you hang a carrot on a string in front of the horse. So it wants it, it's motivated, it's trying to get it, but it, you can't ever catch that thing that you want. Guys, that is tragic. That single people who need that family don't feel like they can find it in the church. Hold on to that thought, because we're going to come back to it. Another thing that, that we get told a lot, and this is true for married people and single people, is that you're supposed to be satisfied in Christ. How many of you have at some point been told like that Jesus should be enough for you, or that you should be satisfied in Christ? You don't have to be single, even married people too. That you've got to be able to find your satisfaction in Christ. How many of you have had a super easy time with that? Nobody? Oh, weird. How many of you have had a hard time with that? I have with like finding satisfaction in Christ. The problem is the reason why this is so hard is because we picture something like this. When someone says Jesus should be enough for you or you should be satisfied in Jesus, we picture having the ability to like go up on a mountaintop or into a closet and fall to our knees and pray with such like fervor and passion and intensity that we feel this mystical, spiritual satisfaction in Jesus. And if you think that's what you're supposed to be able to do and you can't, can be incredibly discouraging. But here's the problem. When you picture it that way, you're actually missing the way the New Testament talks about what satisfaction in Jesus is supposed to look like. Remember what we talked about a minute ago. How did ancient Jews commune with God? Where did they go? We just talked about it, you guys. This is going to be the ultimate failure of a sermon. <laughs> the temple, right? Where is the temple now? Within us. Yes, but if you stop there then you get stuck with that same kind of mystical, platonic idea of, well, I'm the temple, so I should be able to connect with God. Look what Paul does. In the Greek language, you can do 
So English only has a second person singular. We only have the word you, which means one person, you. In the Greek language, like a lot of languages, there's also second person plural. English, we talk about this in this church a lot, English actually does have a second person plural, but you have to be from the South to know it. What is it? Y'all. Y'all is the English second person plural. And the kind of, the kind of ultimate version of that word is all y'all. After first service, my father-in-law told me, he goes, uh, he goes yeah, in California, we have U-Haul, but in the South, they have y'all haul. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, now that I'm a dad, I need to learn jokes like that for sure. So here's what Paul is doing. In the first verse, the one we looked at earlier, he's using singular pronouns. He says, do you, individual, not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The other verse from earlier in the book, from 1 Corinthians 3, he says, do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all. We need a translation of the Bible like that, first of all. (laughs) Any of you from the South, let's do it. We can make a lot of money. Do you see the point Paul's making? He says, yes, the Holy Spirit resides in you, but man, in just as important of a way, probably more significant of a way, if you look at the whole witness of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit resides in the community of believers. All of us collectively are the temple, the place where heaven and earth meets. It's not this building, it's this people. So the temple is one image. Another image that is all over the New Testament is the body of Christ. Where's the body of Christ on earth today? In the church. Amen. Now, again, not the church building, the people of the church. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. This is just one example. There are tons. He says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The English word member kind of sounds like it's like a, like a, a member of a club or like church membership in the more formal sense. The word in Greek, melos, is a body part word. Paul has just finished, by the time he's in this section, he's just finished talking about the fact that the body of Christ is made up of all of these different members, meaning things like arms and legs, hands and feet, eyes, mouths, ears. Every Christian is a member, a part, a body part of the body of Christ. In Ephesians, he talks about how we all grow up into the head that is Jesus. Do you see how close the connection Paul is trying to paint between Christians is? He goes, for you to be disconnected from the body is like being a hand disconnected from a human body. When one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Brothers and sisters, it is is not good for man to be alone. But you do not have to be married to not be alone. That's what this is a picture of. The body of Christ exists in part for Jesus to be able to satisfy your need for relationship. It's not just some platonic, mystical idea of my spiritual connection with God. If the body of Christ meets your need for relationship, that is not some kind of like weak substitute for satisfaction in Christ. That is satisfaction in Christ. And when we're not doing that for each other, everything falls apart. Look at how strongly Paul says it in Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He does not say, go to church three times a month and so fulfill the law of Christ. Read the Bible every day and so fulfill the law of Christ. Pray 
preach a sermon, fulfill the law of Christ. These are good, important things. But you guys, when Paul says, how do you fulfill the law of Christ? He's not talking about salvation. The rest of Paul's theology makes it crystal clear. But he says, once you're saved, how do you live in the way that Jesus wants Christians to live? How do you follow his law? Bear one another's burdens. If you want to know how to fulfill the law of Christ today, bear one another's burdens. When I read this this week, I got this picture in my mind of two backpackers who start out separately, but they realize they're going the same way, so they start walking together. And they've both got these big, messed up, misshapen backpacks that are kind of like off to the side and it makes it really uncomfortable for them to walk. They're equally heavy, but they're kind of twisted and messed up. And as they're walking, one of the backpackers says to the other one, man, I've got this thing that just like, I can't find a good spot for it on my backpack and it's just making it so hard for me to walk. And the other backpacker says, oh, I've got, you know, my backpack's just as full of yours, but I've got this strap that I'm not using that would be perfect for that. So he hands it over. And after he takes it, he says, you know, I've got this thing that's just digging into my back and I tried and I just can't find a place in my pack for it to sit comfortably. And the other guy goes, oh, let me see it. Oh man, I've got the perfect spots. Because you took that other thing, I can fit it in right here. And as they walk, they just sort of pass stuff back and forth. And neither of their loads really gets lighter, but they spread out these unique burdens among each other and they start to walk straighter and their pack starts to sit better. This is what I think Paul's talking about. Bearing one another's burdens, again, don't make this some abstract, mystical idea. Single people, I know you have a unique burden. And it's different for all of you, depending on how you're single and why you're single and how you feel about your singleness. I know you have a unique burden. Widows, in particular. The New Testament is so crystal clear about how much God wants the church to bear your burdens with you. And so I just, you know, as a pastor here at South Valley, if, if any of you who are widowed feel like the church has failed to do that for you, from the bottom of my heart, I'm sorry, and we want to do that better. But in the same way, you guys, married people have unique burdens too. And some of you who are single might be better equipped to help bear those burdens for them. This is what church is. You don't go to church. We are the church. And the church bears each other's burdens. So if you're not doing that, if you don't feel like your burdens are being borne by others, and if you don't feel like you're bearing other people's burdens, I would encourage you, and that's a light word, I would beg you, dig in the deeper to this community. Dig in deeper to your small group. Join one if you're not a part of one. Find out how has God uniquely gifted me to carry someone else's burden that they can barely hold up anymore. All of you have these unique experiences, these unique things about your life that, that might have been horrible when they happened but have equipped you to carry specific burdens that other people in the congregation can't carry. Being a member of the body of Christ is doing that for one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, you guys, when the church does that for you, that is not a substitute or a stand-in for Jesus being enough for you. That is Jesus being enough for you in body on earth. Lastly, I want to I say this because we don't say it often enough in church and it's incredibly important. In the Old Testament, God says it's not good for man to be alone. 
In the New Testament, you start to see this shift in emphasis, especially in Paul, where because of the kind of importance of expanding the gospel and because of how soon Jesus is going to come back, Paul will say things, Paul who was single for his whole life, by the way, Paul will say things like, I wish that all of you could be single like me. And in fact, if you could, that would be better because you could devote yourself, all the energy you would give to a husband or a wife, you can devote yourself to God. He, to be crystal clear, Paul says, I'm, marriage is not, I'm not saying marriage is a sin. The Bible's clear, marriage is a good thing. But for those who can be single, that could be a calling on your life from God. Not so that you can be free to go have fun and go on crazy vacations. Paul's whole point is so that you can devote that extra energy to the expansion of the kingdom, to devotion to service to God. There are some of you who, that, that's your calling. And I want to empower you to know that no matter how many times well-meaning Christians tell you, hey, are you dating anybody yet? We need you. We need those single people because the church is also full of single people who have hard reasons that they're single. And you might be the person who can help bear that person's burden. And just know that if you live your whole life single, like Paul did, like Jesus did, by the way, ultimately, in the new creation, you won't have missed out on anything but a symbol of the union that you will have with Jesus. Paul in Ephesians says, the image of, of man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife is a mystery that refers to, that, that points to, that demonstrates the love that Jesus has for the church. You might live your whole life and not get married. You're not gonna miss out on the reality. You will just be bypassing the symbol. So single people, feel encouraged, feel empowered. Maybe you're going to get married at some point. Maybe you're not. If you are in Christ, you will not miss out on anything but a symbol. And it's a beautiful symbol, a wonderful symbol that I'm incredibly grateful for in my life. But some of you are going to be called to be like Paul. And that's a good thing. We're going to take communion together. Ushers, you guys can, can come forward and start passing it out. It's actually like the most perfect way ever to end this, this sermon and this series. The early church, communion was like the thing that church service was about. Did you guys know that? Like they, got, they gathered together and it was really like about this meal that they had. And they truly sat down and had a family meal together. Now you, you can find in books like 1 Corinthians that they weren't necessarily doing an awesome job at it, but they, they sat down at table as a family and had a meal together. And that, that's incredibly significant because they believed, as we believe, that what Jesus accomplished on the cross, what these things symbolize, makes a new, unique family of equals. Paul says things like, there's no slave, no free, there's no Jew, Greek, there's no male, female. I would add there's no single married in the family of God that you have been invited into on the basis of the blood of Jesus, everyone has a seat at the table. Not because you're good enough to be there, because Jesus paid the price for you to be there. So on the night that Jesus gets arrested, he's sitting at a family meal with his disciples and he, he takes the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. Think about that for a second. You realize that to create this new body, Jesus had to break his. Beyond our, our wildest imagination, the horror of that breaking of his body to create a new one that couldn't have existed if he hadn't done that. 
And then he took wine, which we symbolize with juice, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the creation of a new covenant, the creation of a new people. When you are a part of the family of God, single, married, whatever, you come into the body of Christ in a way that, that was unfathomable, I think, for most of human history, for most of Jewish history, that all of a sudden when you see what Jesus did and, and how it allows you to go from being enemy of God to being son or daughter of God, I hope you realize how that makes you brothers and sisters of each other in a way that's, that's so far beyond the casual, hey, how you doing, brother? That body broken for you created a new body that you can be a part of. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way the blood spilled was to create a new covenant, a new relationship between God and humanity that was not possible before. And if you are a part of that, if you entrust yourself to Jesus for salvation, you're a part of the family of God. Let's take the cup together. Father, and again, it, it struck me when I prayed in, in first service, but again, it, it just hits me what an incredible privilege it is to, to call you that. I pray that my brothers and sisters in this room would be encouraged that they have a place at the table, whether they're single or married. I pray that, that my married brothers and sisters would bear the burdens of the single in this congregation. That this would be a place where they can have family. You said it's not good for men to be alone, Lord, and I am convinced that in the church it is not necessary for men to be alone, whether they're married or not. And so, Lord, I thank you for making that possible by the sacrifice that, that this bread and juice symbolize for us. Let it transform us, not just internally, but externally, from people who maybe could have been friends without you to people who can be brothers and sisters, members of the same body because of what you've done. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.